Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, winers and diners, and welcome to a very, very, very special episode of Whining About Herstory with your hosts, Emily. Kelly. And two very special guests, Leah and Rachel from Hashtag History, making history fun, even if you hated it. (laughs) I love it. Hi, guys. Hi, welcome, ladies. Hello. You may remember uh, Leah and Rachel from our Radium Girls episode where we got real depressing. We have also been on their podcast and we talked about Dorothea Dix and they Mm -hmm. covered Jane Topan, who was everyone's worst nurse. (laughs) Worst nurse, worst nightmare, the whole, all the things. Yeah, crawling literally the worst thing. Still, just like murderous, Whoa. sexual predator nurse. Yeah. Anyway, if you want to hear about that, please go and find hashtag history wherever you're listening to us. After this episode, though, no, st- <laughs> stay tuned for this. So we are once again teaming up to talk about the light and darker sides of herstory. So Lee and Rachel, do you guys want to tell us a little bit about your podcast and what you explore? Sure. Uh, I'm Leah. I'm Rachel. She, she paused for a long time. I guess that means I was supposed to say my name. <laughs> yes. Introduce yes. yourself. It, that was all you. Um, so we are Hashtag History. We like to cover stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption from history. Um, and we also like to put a little spin on it um, by pairing a cocktail that goes along with the story of that episode so for instance um oh gosh i can't recall uh for the leonardo da vinci episode we did a florence fizz cocktail which was probably my favorite cocktail of all time i knew i knew for a 150 percent fact that you were going to bring up the florence fizz because it is your favorite cocktail of all time and in honor of that we combined forces with our wine and your cocktails and we have a so Technically, it's called the New York Sour, but we are renaming it the Hashtag Whining Cocktail. Loving it. And it is a whiskey sour topped with wine. Yes. And it's it's yeah, good. It's actually really good. I, we will post pictures. Hopefully, we will have the cocktail left to take pictures of because I didn't do it beforehand. I, I, I and did. I made. I, did. Oh, I took oh, one. Thank I took God. one picture of my cocktail. I'm like, this is going to be gone in about five seconds. As you can tell, we have already been enjoying these. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also sipping on some extra sweet bitch that we had laying around mm-hmm. because why not? Yeah. <laughs> so, lady, cheers. And thank you so much for being here. We appreciate cheers. it. Thank you for having us. Yes. We always oh, love Always a you, pleasure. Ladies. Well, and something that's really exciting is I was a fan of your podcast before we had like connected as podcasters. Mm-hmm. So when you had reached out the first time, I was like, what? Yeah, we both fan <laughs> And I'm I'm getting like a little more chill about it, but I might my inner fangirl <laughs> might come seeping out. So just be ready for that. Well, it was like I showed my husband this thing the other day and it was a like little meme and it was like me. I made some new friends. Friend, are they friends or are they podcast hosts? Me, podcast host. And I'm like, why can't they be both? They are the same. I'm like, we're friends. We are. (laughs) Of course we are. We're going to come to California someday and visit you We're going to take you guys up to Sonoma and Napa. Yes. It's going to be good. Lots of wine tasting. It's going to be amazing. And then we will have drunk stories all together that we can share. (laughs) Right? Oh, my God. We're going to slate it for 2022 pending pandemic. Yes. 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 Post-pandemic wind down. Pending pandemic, fire, snow. 
No, because in California, in California, you have to go to the snow. Yeah, the snow does not assault you on your doorstep. No. Yes, we we are. In fact, I'm not familiar with the snow that you speak of. What what uh, what do we refer to? I've only never seen snow in movies. You, maybe you guys should come visit us then. I know. Or not. That's okay. Anytime <laughs> November through like May is, you Oh, know. God. Sometimes even June. Oh, man. The, the thing about snow is like it doesn't interest me. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't like being cold, so I like it from a distance. It's pretty. You can, you can look at pictures of it and you're good. Yeah. I become such a judgy bitch when it comes to watching movies because there will be these beautiful Christmas scenes or, you know, winter in the city and the snow falling and everyone's wearing these cute little outfits. I'm like, you would be freezing your ass off in that and you would not look that relaxed. <laughs> right. You would be hunkered down, shaking and exhausted because every muscle in your body is so tense. With <laughs> Whereas we're like, oh, cute outfits and practical. <laughs> like we have no, oh right? my God. <laughs> no idea. Idea. That little beret that totally doesn't cover your ears is adorbs. <laughs> right? You definitely won't die on your way to Target. <laughs> so what we decided to do, so Kelly and I in our episodes normally don't talk about who we're covering. We usually don't do themes unless we're doing like Pride or Black History Month or something like that. Very, very general themes. But because this is a very special event, we decided to find some continuity within our stories. So... Hashtag history is going to tell us a very dark story. Yeah. And we're going to tell a lighter story. And actually, I'm going to challenge you listeners to figure out what the connection is, because these stories could not be more different. But there is a connection. We did put thought into this. It just may not make sense to you. <laughs> and it's actually surprised us who you're covering. So I we will also yes, attempt we to make the connection. <laughs> we will also attempt to make the connection. Okay. So today. We are going to tell you the story of Dorothea Puente, this little old white lady who, during the 1980s, killed upwards of nine people and buried them in her backyard while she continued to collect her victims' social, social security checks. What a bitch. Best, fer- <laughs> best fertilizer. <laughs> <laughs> this is like such a shocker, this whole story. Just prepare it- yourselves. Yeah, that was actually that was actually the uh, least shocking part. What I've already shared. So, (laughs) yeah, so we have a personal connection to this case. One of the reasons we're really fascinated by it is because it actually occurred in our hometown of Sacramento, California. In fact, when I used to work in downtown Sacramento, I'd go on like walks during my lunch breaks, and the majority of the time, I would make sure I could pass by by the Dorothea Puente house. It's located at 1426 F Street. It's still there and it's been converted into somewhat of like a tourist spot. There's signs in the yards that literally say things like trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard or, you know, they like keep off the grass. And then there's this super creepy mannequin dressed like Dorothea Puente in her iconic red coat that we will be talking about. And she's holding a shovel. So it's still there. That's fantastic. If yeah. I lived there, that's what I would do. <laughs> yes. I have to say, though, like, I feel like that's treading the line between, ooh, we're going to recognize a creepy landmark, and then we're going to be super tacky yeah. about it. Yes, oh, it's a ooh. thin line, and they may have crossed yeah. it. <laughs> oh, it's very tacky. It's for sure tacky. But you also yeah. can't, like, own that house and not recognize its history. So, Oh, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to be obvious about, like, yes, we know. We know. We're a murder house. We yep. know. Yes. Okay. So who was Dorothea Puente? 
Dorothea Helen Gray was born on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California. There isn't much known about her childhood and what information is out there. It contains a lot of discrepancies. What we do know, though, is that both of her parents were alcoholics and both died before she was even 10 years old. She was taken to an orphanage before family in Fresno, California decided to take her in. She fabricated a lot of stories about her early life, though, many of which involved like growing up in Mexico as one of over a dozen kids. This Mexico thing is going to become really important later because later in her life, she would use it as a way to connect with the Sacramento impoverished Hispanic community. But we'll get there. Yeah, really upstanding lady as you can see (laughs) (laughs) so the next thing we know about Puente is that she got married in 1945 at the gross age of 16 to a man (laughs) named Fred McFall yeah that's when you're supposed to get your driver's license not get married and let's be honest Fred's probably like I I I, yeah I was I was tempted to look up how old he was but I figured I wouldn't be able to find it because he doesn't last long let's just (laughs) let's be honest (laughs) he's in the yard yeah it's like while you're while you're at the DMV getting your driver's license you're like actually I also need to change my last name while I'm here too can I get a marriage certificate (laughs) Hold on. I'm going to be really rude and just start texting in the middle of our conversation. This is how 16-year-olds behave. So Fred and um, Dorothea, they ended up having two daughters together. And for anyone that does know some of the story about Dorothea Puente and are surprised to hear that she had children because you never heard of them, here's why. She ended up sending her first daughter away to live with family and then gave the second daughter up for adoption. There are discrepancies as to whether her husband simply left her or if he had a heart attack and died. Wink, wink. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say heart attack. (laughs) Either way, by 1948, Dorothea is single, 19, ready to mingle, no husband, no kids. Honestly, I, it sounds like she did those kids a huge favor. I was say, I'm just glad she didn't murder the yes, children. Right? I thought that's where yeah. we were no. going to go. I thought we were going into uh, like Belgian-esque territory <laughs> where like, oh no, everyone in her family keeps getting ulcers. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, it's no. so weird. We're not quite that dark, but we're close. We're very close. Okay. <laughs> So we to make that line. Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Just like the house borders the tacky line. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to make ends meet, she began forging checks. She was quickly caught by law enforcement and sentenced to a year in prison. She only ended up serving six months. And after being released, she married her then second husband, Axel Johansson, cool name, whom she uh-huh. remained married to for over a decade. Sadly, wow. It wasn't a happy, healthy decade, though, um, with Puente continuing to get in trouble with the law and spending additional time behind bars. She served time while married to Johansson for running a brothel. I have many questions <laughs> about <right>. this. Yeah. <laughs> there needs to be more information on that. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Dot, one- dot, dot. Question mark, question mark. Yeah. (laughs) And then once she was released from jail, she divorced Johansson and married, in case you aren't keeping track, husband number three, Roberto Puente. And this is where she gets the name we all know her by. 
she, Roberto's poor family because she ruined their entire last name. <laughs> right. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> like we got to go change it. Guys. She took it and just shit all over it and then buried <laughs> it in the backyard. Yeah. So Boom. she didn't stay married to Puente particularly long though, as she quickly realized he was an alcoholic and she wasn't putting up with that. So quick recap, brothels, forging checks. Okay. Perpetual drunkenness. Not okay by her moral code. <laughs> no, it reminds her too much of daddy. I don't know. Like the yeah. other stuff, you got to respect the hustle. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. She's she just wants to make a buck. Boss babe. Yeah. 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 She's doing it for herself. If she hadn't murdered a bunch of people, we may be talking about her as like a crime queen or something. <laughs> totally. Well, she did continue this um, entrepreneurial neural lifestyle if you will and spent more time behind bars this time for dealing drugs and for theft so again back to our list stealing drug charges totally fine yeah <laughs> i appreciate you laying that all out yeah yeah now we're in the late 1960s and dorothea acquired a three-story 16-bedroom sacramento house on f street which she converted into a boarding house i have many questions about this as well how does she afford a 16-bedroom house in downtown sacramento i'm unsure <laughs> right i was probably thinking... like about to fall over and they're just like whatever take I, it yeah. i was You'll just thinking the like they gave the it to 60s, what a magical time <laughs> Where you could buy a boarding house as a perpetual criminal who probably like forged your mortgage statement. I like what? Yeah, you think forging checks like immediately no one would want to sell you a house? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Hashtag the 60s. What a wild boss time. Babe. Wild time. <laughs> yeah. In the 1960s. Maybe boss bitch instead of babe. <laughs> yeah. Boss bitch, bad gardener. <laughs> <laughs> So it's also around this time that Dorothea marries and divorces her fourth and final husband, Pedro Montalvo. Did I say that right? Montalvo. Um, I'm very curious as to why she didn't take his last name. Maybe by, by that point, she was tired of going to the DMV to change her name. <laughs> tired of the paperwork. Like, they're they're going to recognize me. I don't want to do this again. Yeah. So around yeah. this time, she began frequenting bars, um, local bars in Sacramento and preying on older men by forging their signatures and stealing their money. She ended up being charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud and was sentenced to five years probation. A few years later in the 1970s, she was caught forging the signatures of her tenants at the boarding house and stealing Jeez. their money for which she was arrested once again, and placed on probation with her probationary terms, explicitly stating that she was never to run a boarding house again. Just had to lay that out there. This is like a month. <laughs> this reminds me of HGTV where it's like, I'm a food blogger and I collect antique stamps and our budget's $3 million. It's like, <laughs> Always. I'm a thief. I'm a thief and a brothel owner and a forager and, and I, I would pray like on the elderly. And I would like an front villa. And, and <laughs> yeah. my sentence is a paperclip. Here, here's my fine. Like, she, she's clearly got this pattern that she's not breaking. And they're like, well, if you don't fuck up for five years, I guess no big deal. Right. Also, don't run a boarding house. Whatever. Yeah. Yes. Try not to. But no be, one's going to check. Exactly. on the street. It's fine. Yeah. So at this point... Right. We have lots of husbands, lots of crimes, lots of jail time. 
and lots of probation. But that was just the background story because we need a drum roll here. We are now finally getting to the main event. So it all begins with Ruth Monroe in 1982. Monroe was a longtime friend of Puente's. So when Monroe became ill, she reached out to her friend and asked if she would be willing to take care of her as somewhat of a caregiver during this tough time. Puente invites her to stay with her and lo and behold, only two weeks after moving into Puente's place, Monroe dies of supposed drug overdose. Within just two weeks, both Monroe's $6,000 that she had brought along with her and Monroe herself were gone. It has long been suspected that Monroe was Puente's first victim, but at the time, her death was ruled a suicide. But before Puente could commit murder again, she was thrown back in prison for robbing a guy she met in a bar. She just can't quit, right? Like, it's actually exhausting how many times this lady was in and out of jail. (laughs) She's like, you were supposed to be too drunk to remember me. I bet bet the cops rolled up on her and she's like, oh shit. And they're like, you're under arrest for robbing a bar. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that that was me. Yep, totally didn't do anything else. Yeah, yeah she's like, I'm getting off easy. I'm going to like she's not like, even oh, debate Oh, thank this. God, that's right? all I'll you're here I'll be out for. in a month or two, it's fine. <laughs> right. Okay, so we have finally made it to the part of the story where she's at 1426 F Street running a boarding house, which if you'll recall just a few moments ago, we talked about that was strictly against her probationary terms. So the year is 1985, Puente, she began taking in tenants, and she had a type. She always took in the less fortunate, those with, you know, little to no family ties. You know, it could be, you know, criminals, homeless, elderly, and so on. The one other thing that all of her tenants had in common were government benefits. Puente was only interested in tenants that were receiving Social Security or other government aid. She made sure that all of their mail came directly to 1426 F Street and only she was allowed to check the mailbox. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that she was obviously collecting the benefits made out to her tenants by personally subtracting their rent, her cut, and other bills from their checks before giving them a quote allowance. Here's your paper clip. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Um, Something I want to say here, just to speak to the tenants, you know, if there's any confusion as to like why they would let her do this, it's important to note that the majority of the people living in her boarding home were elderly, sickly, mentally ill, and had never had someone helping them out with their finances prior to Puente. Many of her tenants didn't even know how to receive benefits, much less how to manage them when they did receive them. And then remember, like earlier on at the top of the episode, I talked about how she identified with the Hispanic community. So English was not the first language of many of her tenants. So understanding government benefits, it's not a simple concept. So it's not really that insane that her tenants allowed her to accept their checks and do what she would with them. And then also keep in mind, just for optics, right? Puente was portraying herself as this sweet, innocent, 70-something-year-old woman. What harm could she do, right? She's so tiny in her little red coat. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So social workers were actually very fond of Puente. Unaware of her parole violations, social workers often place several down on their luck individuals in Puente's care and praised her for taking in even the roughest of their cases. 
But the harmony between social workers and Puente did not last long. In fact, a social worker is the very reason why she got caught. In 1988, a man by the name of Albert, Oh my God, Alberto. Oh my God, I'm struggling. It's the wine. Alberto Montoya. <laughs> it's, the wine. it's the wine, not the whiskey. <laughs> I, I, I think I was like attempting to roll the R, which that's not necessary. His name is Alberto Montoya, uh, was <laughs> placed in Puente's care by a social worker. Montoya, known as Bert, was a homeless schizophrenic. So his social worker was ecstatic when she found Puente, unlike other homes that she had tried to place Montoya in. Puente's boarding house looked, quote, homey and clean, and it had a beautiful full yard full of flower beds, all the better to bury you in. And Puente herself... Went back to the good fertilizer comment. <laughs> and Puente herself was so charming, portraying herself as a former World War II nurse, a member of the Hispanic community, like Rachel said, and then willing to take in someone like Montoya. Things turned sour really quickly, though. Just doing her job, Montoya's social worker called Puente regularly to check in on him and to see how he was doing, but he was never there when she would call under the pressure of these constant phone calls, Puente eventually ended up telling the social worker that Bert had left for Mexico to visit family, but then later that a family member had picked him up and taken him off to Utah. After months (laughs) of this evasion, the social worker ended up contacting law enforcement and reporting a missing person on November 7th, 1988. Law enforcement arrived at the boarding house where Puente graciously allowed them entrance. She repeated the same story to them that uh, Montoya was in Utah with family. Uh, They left the house that day, but went back to the police department and ran a background check on Puente, only to find some very disturbing background, which I'm like, why was this not? Illegal boarding house. Yeah. Not only did they find her criminal background and not only did they find that she was in violation of her parole, they also found that this little old lady who had been claiming to be in her 70s all this time was actually only 59 years old. To- oh damn life was rough on yeah. her if she could pass for 70 yeah, yeah that's exactly what i literally have a note written here that says let us all pray to never pass for 70 when we are in our 50s <laughs> oh i still get carded for booze every now and then i'm always like oh I'm my like, god of course you can <laughs> I and i make such a big deal out booze. of it <laughs> I make such a big deal about it. I'm like, this is exactly when 18 year old with a fake ID would say, oh, me? Really? No way. Okay. Oh, I'm so flattered. Oh, Kelly yeah, just sets up a picture. She does look like, rough. She, she does. Yeah. Style. If you look at the pictures of her, she does pass as like a little old 70 year old lady. Yeah. I totally see that. I would totally believe that. Yeah. So learning all of this uh, background information on Puente, officers from SAC PD returned to her house on November 11th, 1988, but without a search warrant. That's important to remember. So they returned to her house without that search warrant. The, um, they arrived at her house and asked again if they can have a look around. And again, Puente is very gracious and welcoming and allows them to look around her house. That is until they reached the backyard and that beautiful flower bed. And <laughs> when they went back there, they noticed some recently dis- 
disturbed soil and they asked if they could search the grounds. She became very hesitant and ended up saying, yeah, okay, go for it, which was good since the police department had already brought in their shovels and began digging. (laughs) They're just standing there with their shovel like, can we? Yes. Can we? Ready? Go. Go. (laughs) So the cops, they start digging in her backyard with the goal of locating the body of Alberto Montoya. And it doesn't take them long to locate a human leg and foot. This human leg was very quickly identified as belonging to an older female. And based on the state of decomposition, it was also clear that this female body had been dead for a long time. So although law enforcement wasn't sure who the body belonged to, they knew one thing. It sure as hell did not belong to Alberto Montoya. The body was later discovered to be that of Leona Carpenter, a 78-year-old former tenant of Puente's. Over the course of the next four days, a total of seven, seven, two hands needed, seven (laughs) bodies were located in Puente's backyard. And if, I mean, you ladies aren't familiar with Sacramento, like the downtown Sacramento area, right? But Leah and I can speak to Sacramento downtown backyards are about as big as the room that I'm recording in right now. So it's amazing that there were even there was even the space to bury seven bodies right. in that backyard. She like Mario condoed her graveyard. Yeah. She's like, this guy goes, it's Tetris. They, she body Tetris. She body Tetris. <laughs> this bush does not Tetris. bring me joy. This body does bring me joy. Oh. Well, it doesn't bring joy, but it brings money. Six thousand dollars. Six thousand money, money. Oh, so one day she stuck around on the first and second day as the police dug, claiming she had no idea she had dead bodies buried in her backyard and that it was all very distressing to her. Must have happened before I moved in. Clearly, I didn't. Yeah, the freshly disturbed them for a friend. That wasn't me, (laughs) right? Like I'm, I'm seventy. I can't dig a hole. I know nothing about that. Partway through the second day of digging, Puente approaches Sacramento Police Department Detective John Cabrera and asks if, for the sake of her nerves, if she can go to the local Clarion Hotel and have a coffee. Just to, you know, get away from it all. We need to rewind to where Leah, you know, mentioned that the police were conducting the search without a warrant, right? They were conducting the search simply at the verbal allowance of Puente. So in order to stay on her good side so that they could continue their search, Cabrera said yes, and he let her go. The thing that's so frustrating about this at this point is like, okay, you found a body. Now get a warrant. Get a warrant. Oh, yes. Or arrest her because that's like suspicious as hell. They already know. That's reasonable I feel like suspicion. we're going to talk about this later, but like they already know she's breaking her parole. You have grounds to arrest yes. her. Yes. Yes. Can right. I just say this is this is super sexist, and this is the side of sexism that we don't talk a lot about on the podcast because we're kind of be focused on the subjugation of women. But yeah, it's like, oh, but she's a little old lady. Like we're gonna treat her so nice. No, fuck that bitch. She sucks. Well, for the longest time, though, there was like the whole thing out there that women can't be serial killers. It's it's. It's just not a right. thing. Women can't be serial killers. They don't have it in them. And Arlie, Eileen Warnos was like, watch Hashtag me. Equality. <laughs> Hashtag equality, bitch. We can kill too. Even in Women the can realm. be anything or do anything. <laughs> exactly. So this is where if you Google Dorothea Puente, the most infamous picture of her is her leaving the property in this like red coat, 
with an umbrella as she's leaving the scene is captured by the local news media that had swarmed on the site, seeing all the commotion that was going on there. And the reason why this picture is so infamous is because this would be the last time the Sacramento Police Department would see Dorothea Puente for quite some time. So I listened to an episode when we were putting together our research for this episode, I listened to an episode of the Exposed podcast about Dorothea Puente in which the host actually interviewed Detective Cabrera about this very moment. And he says on the podcast that that was the worst moment of his entire policing career, making the decision to let her go. Yeah. It haunted him forever. Oh my. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. As well, it probably should have. good? Yeah. That's a... (laughs) That's why I'm so happy where I am in like my work life and career, because if I make a mistake, no one dies. A serial killer doesn't get away. I don't make like a billion dollar mistake. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I can usually fix within the day. Yeah, It's not being plastered in the news. Yes. Yeah. I work at a hospital, but like our department doesn't have anything to do with like patients. So that's one of our things. Like when someone's freaking out, we're just like, you know what? No one's going to die. We don't handle that. No, no one dies kind of in die. administration. Yeah. <laughs> no one dies for me, but I do often see my events in the news, which I don't like. <laughs> see, I couldn't you handle, I couldn't even news. handle that level of pressure. Yeah. I could not. Like, I thought being a wedding planner would be fun, but the people you're working with are under the most insane kind of stress because it's like not even totally real yes it's an event the flowers are (laughs) a slightly darker lavender than i envisioned when i was 12 (laughs) bitch calm down yeah yeah yeah. all right so it wasn't too long after puente left that the police department discovered another fresh body covered in blankets and trash bags and At this point, they're pretty sure that they had located the missing man they were originally looking for, Alberto Montoya. Having watched Puente enter the Clarion Hotel, which was right across the street from her boarding house, um, the officers swarmed on the place to arrest Puente then and there. Uh, Too bad she had already left town, of course. (laughs) (laughs) For Four days, the police combed the state for Puente. It was later discovered that immediately upon entering the Clarion Hotel, she had used a payphone, called a cab, and fled to L.A. with thousands of dollars in her purse. Immediately upon arriving in L.A., she initiated some of her old tactics and started swindling elderly men in bars for money. Fortunately, (laughs) one of the men she encountered doing this uh, shortly after encountering her in a bar saw television coverage featuring her and upon recognizing her as that flirty old lady that uh, he had just met at the bar (laughs) called the cops. Yeah, she seemed really, really, really (laughs) nice. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so he called the cops and Puente was quickly apprehended. Can I just say, though, she is having a much better experience at a bar with men than I ever have had in my entire <laughs> life. Try asking them like, about their she's social making money off these guys. <laughs> yeah, like, get the start ball the all wrong. Start the conversation with, so do you or do not collect Social Security? If the answer is not yes, move on. Yeah. yeah. Oh my so God. You've got to set your age range at like 60 or above. Yes. Oh, I would do very well with 60 and above. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, I had a that's, grandfather. That's your problem. I had a grandfather try to hook me up with his son. I was like, oh, sorry. No, thanks. He goes, well, if you're not into him and I'm like, no, nope. 
But do you collect like, social security? Oh my God. <laughs> no. You know what I think is so hot? You know what makes my panties so wet? Government bennies. <laughs> Let's Tell talk me about, about yours. That. Yeah. Are you like How disabled? You what's, what's it like to collect social security? Cause that's, you know what social security sounds like? Sexy. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you do a little leg touch and then they're, they're, they're that's it. <laughs> <laughs> they're sold. Yep. Oh my gosh. So rightly so, SAC PD took some major heat for letting this murderer go. Uh, if you listen to that exposed podcast that Rachel mentioned, you can hear in Detective Cabrera's own words his sincere regret. But even still, he contends that he had no grounds for holding Puente. She hadn't been charged with anything at that time. More modern contemporaries totally disagree, though, stating that at the very least, the police department was aware that she had broken her parole and could have held her on account of that. And I agree with modern contemporaries on that tidbit. <laughs> I do, too. The modern contemporaries are literally anyone else alive at that time going, what? What did <laughs> like, he do, Cabrera? They, they specifically think- like put that in there to, you cannot have a boarding house. She clearly has yes, a boarding yes. house. Something else I think is very interesting is they're they're digging in this garden and they're finding body after body after body. And then when they finally stumble upon the body of the person they were originally looking for, that's when they're like, oh, oh, okay. This is, it's like they find a body. Well, that's not Albert. Yeah. Chuck. All I, right. Is this, no, that's not Albert. Keep just, going. I think it's a combination of a million things. I think it's sexism in that, you know, and she had this facade of this little old lady. And so they find bodies. And I think maybe there's this small element of denial that maybe she had nothing to do with it. Right. How could she, she's this little old lady. Maybe she moved into this place, not knowing that she had several bodies in the backyard. Right. I think it's that. I think also for the majority of human beings, our first line is defense, right? So I think that the fact that Detective Cabrera is continuing to maintain his story, that he didn't feel that he had the grounds to, you know, have have a search warrant and to arrest her at that time. Of course, he's saying that. This is his career and his character on the line. Of course, you would continue to maintain your position of defensibility, right? In the face of a mistake that you made. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and the longer you tell yourself something, the more totally. that becomes your truth. Yes. Yes. So like after all these years, he's just like, no, that's, that's his truth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So whichever way you look at it, four days mm-hmm. after her escape, she was arrested and hauled back to good old Sacktown. And yes, that's what we call Woo! Sacramento, Sacktown. <laughs> <I'm> all right. <laughs> her trial wouldn't take place until four years later and was moved to Monterey, California, as the result of a motion granted for a change of venue proposed by her attorneys. This was as a means of obtaining a fair trial for their client. The media in Sacramento had been so great on this whole ordeal in the wake of this case that they were confident Dorothea would not receive a fair trial here in Sacramento. Yeah, they're like, everyone knows about yeah. this. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. no way the jury know, like wouldn't have heard. Yeah, yeah. There are people, I have a, a family member that still works for the Sacramento Police Department, and she says there are people there that still talk about this case, that they were like there oh, then, sure. and it's continued to be wow. a top conversation at the Sacramento Police Department. Yeah. So she ends up being charged with nine murders as police were able to 
able to connect her to two other murders in addition to the seven bodies located in her backyard at 1426 F. So out of respect for the victims, I wanted to read out loud each of their names. We have Alberta Montoya, Ruth Monroe, Leona Carpenter, Everson Gilmouth, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, Vera Faye Martin, Betty Palmer, and James Gallup. The prosecution called over 130 witnesses and ended up showing over 3,100 exhibits during the course of the trial. One particular witness was from the Social Security Administration that was able to calculate the number of Social Security checks being delivered to 1426 F Street and was able to verify that Puente was cashing out the checks even after the deaths of her tenants. Another witness called was a neighbor of hers. This, this story is so wild to me that recalled on several occasions the horrible smell that was like coming out of Puente's house. And then on another particular occasion, this same neighbor also found a whole set of human teeth in his own backyard. What, what? did she do? It just like tossing like, them up in the air, like a, I, I like, like that's not even my that's not even my question. My question is, if there is ever a full set of human teeth in my backyard, I'm calling about that on the spot, right? Right. Like, I'm, I'm not, not touching it. I'm testify. backing away. Did they dig up that person's yard too? Like, are there bodies in there also? That'd be my question. Like, well, this is just what I found. See, here's what I'm picturing, though, guys. Yes, I'm picturing Dorothea you know, like digging a hole or whatever, dead body over here. And then like, I don't know, something happens and she like slips, kicks, <laughs> kicks, the, teeth, kicks the teeth off of the, the corpse over the fence and just, just goes, eh, that, that, sounds that, that won't come back to haunt me. That's just fine. like some right. perfect slapstick. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? To be honest though, she was able to get away with it for a very long time. This person obviously did not alert authorities to these teeth until they were called as a witness to testify. Yeah. I mean, during jury... 2020, finding teeth in my yard was a little weird. <laughs> a little it sus. was a little weird. Public service announcement. If you ever find human teeth in your backyard, <laughs> please report it. Please and thank you. Even if they're dentures, like there could be an old person missing. Like just at least missing their know. dentures. Yeah. Those are expensive. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the jury ended up deliberating for 43 days, which is actually the longest jury deliberation in California history. The jury ended up convicting her on two counts of first degree murder and one count of second degree murder. All other counts were squashed on account of one particular juror that was hung. And now before, you know, people get all up in arms about that juror not being able to unanimously side with the remainder of the jury, we have to talk about the biggest still ongoing detail of the Puente case and the number one reason why so many people still to this day are not convinced of her guilt. It's what we've already talked about before. She was a frail old lady. So how was she able to drag these bodies to her yard, chop them up? Because FYI, in some cases, the bodies were found without their heads, feet, hands. How was she able to bury them in her backyard all by herself? There has long especially, been a theory. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, especially if they're missing body parts, yeah. that's going to make them slightly lighter. But also, she wasn't as old and frail as people thought she That's was. That's always been my take on it. And I remember on our episode that we were kind of like opposing views on this where Rachel's like, no, she was like an old person. Like, she's like really old and frail. And I was like, it was all an act. It's all an act. 59. <laughs> Leah, I'm going to tell you right now, if I when I turn 59, if I have the joy of turning 59, 
I am going to look back on this and be like, Leah called me old. What a bitch. <laughs> I am not old. No, I'm saying the exact I'm opposite. Age. It's Rachel. Rachel saying that oh, she was oh. old and frail. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Rachel, I'm saying the what? exact what opposite the fuck? because my, <laughs> we're, we're insulted in the future. Yeah, my parents are like in their late 50s, early 60s, and it'd be really yeah. hard for them, but I fully believe they could bury you believe bodies in if that. they wanted to. Oh, my mom could totally bury bodies. <laughs> you just need some good upper body strength. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I, you just I, gotta be motivated. I 100% feel the, I feel it all. And 100% agree that she obviously was not as old as she was portraying. However, you have seen the pictures of her. She was little. Uh-huh. And she did look old as dirt. Yeah. <laughs> was able to <laughs> looking like she was 70. So there has long been a theory that she had an accomplice. There were neighbors that testified that they had seen a homeless man by the name of Chief at the house a lot that had served as somewhat of a hired hand for Puente. These same neighbors testified that they had witnessed Chief pouring concrete in Puente's backyard all before one day going missing. I think it's very possible that she was able to hire some help from, you know, an unfortunate soul and got them to do the dirty work for her. We'll never know though, because Puente continued to proclaim her innocence. The most she ever admitted to was cashing the checks of her deceased tenants, but she always denied any involvement in their deaths. Yeah. Cause like, even if she hired him to like dig the holes and stuff, She's still probably the one that like actually murdered them. Oh yeah, yeah. And even if I, I believe that if like if this theory is true that that's what happened, right? That she was the murderer and they were just the carriers of the body, right? Yeah, digging the holes. Um, but even if she's just an accomplice or an accessory, either way, she is one hundred percent involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's no way she's not. I'm getting yeah. such strong Belganess vibes because yeah. she also had that farm hand yep. who helped her out, and then didn't he end up dead too? Uh, yeah, I think so. And that wasn't it. His family that came looking. No, yeah. no, that was um, one of her. Suitors. It was one of the husbands. One of suitors. suitors. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But I, because I mean, that's totally plausible, and I, I think that's definitely possible, especially because we've seen women killers especially this kind of like fine you know scheming financial motivated ones mm-hmm. do uh-huh. that before where they they get a little help and they're like i'll give you some money don't worry about it just right. digging a hole man <laughs> just carrying a body down the stairs in a duffel bag no big deal no it's, yeah. it's just a rolled up old carpet just don't Why ask you questions bring it in the backyard because it's old and ugly don't ask questions <laughs> you know the recycling center charges me so much to get rid of this i'd rather just bury it in the yard that is true like and it weighs the government 200 more of my money <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure rugs are biodegradable. At least, probably back in the '60s, they were. They probably didn't have rubber bottoms. Exactly, it's fine. So, following the trial, Puente was sentenced to life imprisonment at the Central California Women's Facility facility in Chowchilla, which I love saying Chowchilla. Yeah, um, where she stayed until she died of natural causes in 2011. Wow. Yeah, we also have to mention that while in prison, get this. She wrote a cookbook quite literally titled Cooking with a Serial Killer, which can be found on Amazon now for just $10. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Who gets that money? Because isn't it against the law for a killer to profit from their crimes? I don't know. She's not. She claims innocence. I don't know. Like, okay, you don't get to write a cookbook that's called Cookbook by a Serial Killer and be like, 
but I'm not a serial killer. It's fiction. That's like OJ's, well, if I had murdered my yes. wife and her yes. boyfriend, <laughs> this is how I would have done it. Yeah. So I have a direct yes. quote for you from this book. Um, it's actually what's on the back of the book. Apparently it says none of them were murdered. They died of natural causes. I couldn't do that. Anyhow, I'm not that type of person. I'm too caring. And I worry too much about my people eating. Everybody can tell you that. Why would I spend money fattening them up if I was going to kill them? Dorothy Puente, convict, convicted killer slash gourmet chef. <laughs> I like that she's like, why did I fatten them up? No one ever said you did, Dorothy. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's this so This is bad. like, this comes off as so narcissistic. And like in a lot of these... Um, statements from murderers and stuff it's always the i statements oh, like like when they were digging up the yard and you were saying how she, she i'm so distressed by this i i feel so upset that like you're saying that i'm like yes because it's all about you dorothy it's right. all about you it's not about all the dead people in your fucking yard yeah. poor dorothea yeah <laughs> like oh my god God, she never stopped hustling though. Oh no. No, she's like, I need, I need that money. I'm a gourmet <laughs> chef in prison. In prison. I yep. do think the only thing to... that could have made it worse if she ate someone, if she was like yeah, she was a cannibal, making a cookbook. Would, yeah. I want to need to purchase it. Right. Oh, absolutely. I'm shocked we haven't yet. I'm shocked. Yes. You guys need a like a bookshelf of these things. Yeah. Yes. So just to wrap everything up, like we mentioned at the top of our um, our story, the, the house at 1426 F Street still stands. Several locations mm -hmm. in Sacramento are actually part of a historic registry and therefore cannot be torn down by law. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those houses. Like we mentioned at the beginning, the current owners who became owners in 2010, so only a year before Dorothea died, uh, they have totally made the house into a tourist spot. And it's pretty neat. Uh, uh. <laughs> you know, they also want to make that money. Yeah, they got to hustle. They're too. hustling too. They're they're learning from Dorothea. Hopefully, there's no bodies. Actual, just, real yeah, bodies. Hopefully, hopefully just the making the money. Part. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this house is iconic in Sacramento history. It has been given an array of names, such as the Yard of Death, the Death Garden, the Graveyard on F Street the house of death and more so that's our little death garden isn't bad yeah that's our little tidbit of sacramento you know murderer Yay. no one went for garden of graves no one went for the alliteration i like death garden death garden yeah that's gonna be our new uh all-female metal band <gasps> name death garden yes absolutely or like an edgier sound garden yeah i call bass because bass chick bass players are always really cool Love that. Oh God, they are. I want to be. Play bass. Really? I want to be tambourine because I don't actually have any talent, but I can. <laughs> no, shake we're learning. It. We're learning <laughs> new instruments for this band. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll try drums. Okay, I'll try drums. <laughs> I'll lip sync Ashley Simpson style. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, yeah, oh my that's goodness, our story. That is so wild and disgusting. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm it, like, oh, it, it's like she she's such a horrible person. But there were definitely moments where I'm like, gotta respect the hustle, man. Right. She's just like such an enterprising lady. Especially it's like, get out of jail, immediately do something else. Oh, yeah. Go back to jail. Get out of jail. Immediately start something else. Yeah. Well, and it's 
even when she was on the run for murder, yeah. she's picking it back up. I think that's <laughs> and it's still like an addictive personality, right? Yes. She can't oh, stop yeah. Yeah. And I also think yeah. we have to keep in mind, not that this is at all okay to act the way she act or do the things she did, but like she grew up in a shitty, shitty environment. And I think that probably started these tendencies for her that then just kind of like dominoed into mm-hmm. murder. <laughs> probably. Well, she was definitely all out for herself. And just from what you talked about with her upbringing, I bet from an early age, she learned that I'm the only one that's going to look out for me. Yeah. yeah. And I got to do whatever I can. And again, does not excuse it. I can feel bad for little Dorothea, yes. but the second she starts victimizing others, you're an adult. This is your problem yep, and right. you need to stop making it everyone I'm else's. I'm still really glad that she like sent her kids away. Oh yeah. Right. Like I'm actually still really glad about that. Could you imagine her as like a motherly figure no Uh, can you imagine going to your adopted parents and being like i i really want to know about my biological parents no you don't oh no (laughs) no you do not this this is already a tough conversation and now we have to tell you that yeah your mom's a serial killer and also she has a cookbook which is also (laughs) fucked up (laughs) good god well thank you for sharing with us that horrifying and depressing story um, I'm going to be a little more careful when I dig in my garden, lest yeah. I get falsely accused of burying people. <laughs> so this is why I don't garden. Yeah. Because then people can't like be like, oh, look, there's overturned soil. Like clearly yeah. you, you did something. I'm like, no, I don't garden. Yeah. Look at all those weeds. No, you're like, I swear then- to God, I haven't been out there in at least 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Look, look at this place. Does it look like anyone takes care of this? <laughs> no. I'm going to get accused because we're getting a patio put in next week. And I'm like, there's going to be so much fresh dirt under our deck. Yeah, everyone's going to be like, how many people did you bury down there? And I'm going to be like, no one. I didn't even touch it. You (laughs) must put a fake Halloween skeleton down there, though, right? That would be funny. That would be terrible, but really. We're going to try to bring this back up a little bit with a more positive story, more of a like, yeah, girl, instead of an oh, no, girl (laughs) kind of vibe. Yeah. So today we are going to be talking about Jane Adams. And again, see Yay. if you can guess the connection between our two stories because like I oh, said, you know they are who it super is, different. Wait, are we talking related to John Adams? No. No. I Do don't have think so. Jane? Am I making Her that up? Her family came from the, like dates back to the Pennsylvania colonies, I think, but and she's from- her father's from... name is John. <laughs> But, but she, I don't think it's that job. She was born okay. in 1860 and in Illinois, so. Yeah, none of that tracks. Okay, no, I know nothing <laughs> it's, it's about a, it. It's also A-D-D-A-M-S. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my Two God, D's. I just, I just I got that, too. Oh, my God. So we have a thing in our story, and we just, we both just got the connection Oh, of my it. God. Anyway, you'll, you'll, we'll get there in, like, two seconds. Yep. All like right. Second, second paragraph. Okay, so. Jane Adams was born as Laura Jane Adams on September 6th in Cedarville, Illinois, which is just over three hours north of where Emily grew up. She was the Yay. eighth of nine children, all born of the corn, of course. Kids from Illinois, little known fact, are actually like Cabbage Patch kids. Like our parents just go out into a cornfield and then peel the ears of corn. There's a baby inside. <laughs> it's probably true. Yeah, that, that's how I was born. Children of the corn. Every day. Got yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. These are facts. Like Californians say the snow. Yeah. That's what I, that's my new <laughs> thing I learned today. It's absolutely true. It tracks. Like it tracks. I mean, I I, I proved that tonight. So <laughs> right. 
So her father, John, was a prosperous miller and local political leader who served for 16 years as state senator and fought as an officer in the Civil War. He was also a friend of Abraham Lincoln, which would be pretty cool. And Abraham Lincoln would would begin his letters to him as my dear double deed Adams. Which, which is we what we literally get. Yes. Yes. I get it. Because he spells his name A-D-D-A-M-S, but both of us are immediately like, Ross dirty size? dick, dainty like, dick. I know. Like, double like, dick. Size dick jokes. Like, why did he call Bad him moves. double D? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, my first thought was that him and Abraham Lincoln Eiffel towered someone. And because like their two dicks were involved, that was like his dirty little name. Yeah, double D. <laughs> they were secretly gay lovers, end of story, moving on. No, 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 no. That is it, one of the biggest, both... no, that is one of the in... biggest um, yeah. Yeah. historical myths about Lincoln. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, it, I, I, well, I don't know. Myth, I think myth it was says a quotations. lot. It could be true. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it says a lot that both of our minds immediately went to dick jokes. And then it took us explaining that his name is spelled differently from the yep. know, present John Adams to be like, oh, there are two D's in his name. I get yeah. it. <laughs> You're welcome. We're sticking with the dick jokes, though. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. John Dirty Dick Adams. <laughs> fill, fill in the double D as you will. All right. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about her mother. The one thing we do know, though, is that she was a very generous woman who liked helping the poor. Which is kind of all we need to know. Yeah, she was a a good mom. Yeah. That's what we're going with. So when Jane was two, no bigger than a soybean, her mother died giving birth to her ninth child. Holy. So nine is now the unlucky story. This is why John and Kate stopped at eight. Yeah. (laughs) And then got divorced anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So Jane would go on to be cared for by her elder sisters, and she spent a lot of her childhood playing outdoors, reading indoors, and attending Sunday school. And I also imagine she chased barn cats as a part of her traditional Illinois childhood. And then those barn cats had a uh, poison ivy on them, and then she got poison ivy because she was cuddling them too hard, and that sucked. <laughs> Did you just throw in a personal story there? My mom's personal oh. story. That's, she got poisoned. That sucks. That happened on the East Coast, though, because she grew, she uh, lived part of her childhood on a dairy farm, and she uh, cuddled the barn cats that had poison ivy I mean, all yeah, over those their cats oh, go God. everywhere. Yep. So when she was four years old, Jane contracted tuberculosis of the spine, which I didn't know was a thing. Never heard Horrifying. This is also known as POTS disease because it's the POTS. Uh, and this caused a curvature in her spine and lifelong health problems. This made it hard for her to interact with other kids because she had a limp and couldn't run well and like keep up with their activities. And as we all know, children are the most compassionate of those for those who are different. And this definitely didn't damage Jane's self-esteem at all. No, not at all. Right. JK, it totally did. Uh, Jane, kids are mean. Kids are the worst. Kids are mean. Oh, and Illinois kids are the worst. Like, personal experience, we were all <laughs> bastards. So Jane grew up feeling ugly and like an embarrassment to her socially prominent father. And she recalled feeling shame when walking next to him when he was dressed in his Sunday best mm. because she felt that her existence was an embarrassment to him. Oh. And, like... Fuck, I thought I had self-esteem issues. I was never that bad. Like, right? I'm still like, not oh, that bad. Ugly cry right I was, there. I was always a little arrogant enough to be like, Dad, you're so lucky. I'm the best kid in the world. <laughs> right? You're the, you're the person that buys that Father's Day mug that says, what is it? like? Has the world's best daughter. Yeah, or the one that's like, you know, yeah, your favorite daughter gave you yes. this. Or like, oh, I was you know, that ones child. Like that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
That's funny. So by the time Jane was only eight years old, four of her siblings had already died. Three of them in infancy and one at age 16. And then her father remarried to a woman named Anna Hosteller Haldelman. We're just going to call her Anna because I'm not saying that more than once. So 1860s, rough on children. Yeah. That's what we're getting. Rough on children, rough on mothers. It's this weird dichotomy. It's almost like a one in, one out. But at the same time, mother. This one, it was like eight eight in, in, one out. Five out. (laughs) Yeah. But like. It, it, it's like parents were having so many children, but then uh, child I mean, mortality why. rates were high. Uh, mother mortality rates were super high. I'm like, how did anyone even live long enough to have eight children? I Everyone mean, was dying of everything. Right? That's why a lot of families had so many children. Yeah. Because they're like, you know, if we have eight kids, like at least two or three of them should survive. Oh my it's gosh. Like evolutionary yeah, math. Real sad. All right, so growing up, Jane had big dreams of doing something useful in the world, probably influenced by her low self-worth. Jane was a voracious reader, very much into Charles Dickens' work. For anyone who doesn't know, Charles Dickens wrote a lot about the poor, and and this, along with her own mother's generosity, which she remembered, inspired Jane to become a doctor so she too could help the poor. Jane's father was all for it. He encouraged her to pursue higher education, but also wanted her to stay close to home. My guess is because one, she's a woman, and two, she has spinal like problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane though had other plans. She really, really wanted to attend Smith College in Massachusetts. It's one of the seven sister schools that provided women with higher education opportunities, mm-hmm. and I think it had fairly recently opened. Yeah, it was yeah. like brand new. Double yeah. D, however, was having none of it and made Jane attend nearby Rockford female seminary school. Uh, also Rockford is where Emily's uncle used to live. It's a crap hole. <laughs> Yay. There's like a strip mall with a clock tower and that's all I remember. So no fun <laughs> frat parties to go to on the no. weekends. No. So of course, probably cause daddy dearest is paying for college. She was not allowed to attend her dream college and went to female seminary school in Rockford. So Jane made the most of this opportunity. She graduated in 1881 as valedictorian uh, of her class. She'd have to wait another year, however, to technically get her bachelor's degree because it wasn't until 1882 that the school actually became accredited and turned into Rockford College for Women. Wow. Uh, Yeah. She's going to, like, diet college. Right? (laughs) Um, Could you imagine going to college and doing all that work and taking all that time and it's not even legit? uh, Yeah, you don't even get a degree? It's it's really nice that, like, they, like, back accredited people. Because, like, sometimes they don't do that. Sometimes they're they're like, no, yeah, you went through school, but it wasn't accredited at the time, so you're just SOL. Or if what happens if your school gets, was it decredited? Yeah, that happened. One of my friends went to... Oh God, what was the one that happened? It was like four or five years ago. No, it was like, it was like National American Kaplan? University or something like, yeah, it okay. was one of like the big was online ones. Kaplan? It might've been yeah. Kaplan. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she had just gotten her business degree like a year before that happened. And uh, yeah, she was like, what happens? And they're like, no, you're like, you're fine. You know, you you still get your accreditation and like, because you're done basically. But yeah, like everyone that was yeah. in school kind of got... Yeah, but think of it this way. Anyone looking at where you got your degree is going to know that school got, you know, Mm -hmm. nailed for not really being a school. And they're going to judge you, even if you technically still have your degree. Yeah, I I feel bad for those people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even after she had graduated from Rockford, she still hoped to attend Smith to 
earn a proper BA because like we said, it was kind of college light. Mm-hmm. Um, but that summer her father died unexpectedly from a sudden case of appendicitis. Yeah. Oh. However, each child went on to, ru- to inherit roughly $50,000, which is equivalent to around 1.34 million today. Oh. Daddy, daddy was clearly a literal sugar daddy. I would assume his wife, um, <laughs> Anna also received something, but it didn't yeah. say in my in my research. Thanks, double Did B. I ever tell you the story yeah, when right. uh, when my partner Jared had appendicitis? Like his appendix I just know actually it's terrible. So hit. So he this was when he was in the military, and he he was in the Army Reserve, so he was on base, and he was literally about to leave. He's about to step off the base, and his appendix bursts. And it's only funny oh because God. he's fine. Yeah, it's only say. funny because he's okay. And there was a doctor who was like, "Is it really that bad?" And poked where it was, and he like starts screaming and swearing at her. Oh my god! And he got really lucky because one, he lived obviously, but two, because he was still on base when it happened, they the military had to pay for it and take yep. it, take care of him. But if he had step like taken one step off of the base, it'd been like. Suck it. Or he was he was living um like forty five minutes away. So what if that yeah. happened while he was driving? Oh yeah. Well and the other thing like that's like it's great that he lived because like you can go into septic shock real yeah. fast when your appendix bursts. Yeah. It was bad. But yeah, so I read that and I'm like, Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Especially back then. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pretty sure back then if your appendix burst, they were just like yeah, that's like oh, sucks to make for you, you comfortable. Here's some yeah. cocaine yeah. and more. Sign your <laughs> sign your life insurance and will here. Yeah, right. <laughs> here our nurse Dorothea will help you. <laughs> <laughs> she served in World War What too, don't you know? <laughs> so, following their father's death, Jane and her sister Alice and Alice's husband Harry and their stepmother Anna all moved to Philadelphia so that Jane, Alice, and Harry could pursue medical educations because some people want a doctor in the family and they were going to have three. And that's awesome. (laughs) Like, this is a very ambitious family. Yeah. Harry was already trained in medicine a bit and did further studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Jane and Alice completed their first year of medical school at the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia. But Jane's health problems, a spinal operation, and a nervous breakdown prevented her from completing her degree. Yeah, mm, that's a lot. Rel- like, I don't have spine issues, but like health problems and emotional just problems. Those two. I feel that. Yeah. This quote unquote failure, at least that's how she saw it, sent her into a deep depression. And her stepmother, Anna, was also ill. So the entire family just like canceled their plans to stay two years and return to Cedarville, Illinois. They're like, mm-hmm. shit is going so wrong. It is not always sunny in Philadelphia. Right. We got to go back to <laughs> Illinois. I assume they went back. My my guess is because what, there's like two other surviving children. I'm guessing they yeah. were probably still in Illinois. So it's kind of like, okay, let's go home. Well, and they have a community part of the there. Exactly. And- like, and I know death and illness, like we were just talking about, is so common at this time, but this family seriously cannot catch a break. Yeah, that's, I feel so that's bad for them. So yeah. the following fall, Harry, so uh, Jane's brother-in-law, performed surgery on Jane's back to straighten it, which, like, he had yeah. some medical training, but obviously didn't complete his schooling in Philadelphia. I don't know if I want that dude cutting my back open, Oh a my spine God. straightening surgery today sounds like a horror Maybe show. Maybe he was like the only like 
person that did that kind of stuff in Cedarville. I feel like there's a reason for that, though, because no one should be doing it. <laughs> like, do you just, like, push the vertebrae no, into you, place? You, or? You put, well, yeah, and then you put rods in to keep them straight. Right. Ugh. Well, like, vertical, and then, yeah, it's it's a lot. Well, the surgery obviously didn't kill her, otherwise it should be just as another very short side story. Another depressing story, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Harry advised Jane against pursuing her studies instead, tell, tell, t- instead telling her to travel, which is a little ominous because it's like, yeah, don't better yourself, but go see the world because you might totally be dying. Like, isn't that something you tell oh a dead God. person? Not a, like a or dying like person. A, no, yeah, not a dead person. <laughs> I know you're dead, but go travel. No, but yeah, like, isn't that something you like a doctor would say to a dying person? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's what it yeah. sounds like to me. But Jane, you know, is like, how often do you get a prescription to travel the world? So she was like, let's do this. And in August of 1883, she set off on a two-year tour tour of Europe. Yes, please. Yes, sign me up. With her stepmother. I know. Traveling. Where do I They where definitely do I went to the south of, of France. I want a prescription for the south of France. That would totally cure all of my problems. And, and <laughs> yep. to be paid for by insurance. Yes, yes. I don't know. My I'll, insurance. I'll co-pay like a hundred bucks on it. My insurance won't pay for <laughs> shit. They're not going to pay for me to go to the south of France unless I become France's problem insurance wise. Yeah. So uh, she traveled with her stepmother and sometime with friends and family who joined them. And it was during this trip that Jane decided that she did not have to become a doctor or be able to help the poor, but still wasn't sure of like what to do. So she was kind of like, okay. Being a doctor isn't really working out. I don't think I can, you know, do this, but I'm still going to help the poor. Like, my mission is the same. After returning home, Jane lived with her stepmother in Cedarville and spent winters with her in Baltimore. Because remember, day rolling in it, thanks to day daddy. Rolling. <laughs> well, I guess it was, it was Anna's husband, Jane's daddy. <laughs> make it rain, make it rain. Bring in on the pain. Uh, so Jane still struggled significantly with depression, and this was exacerbated by her physical disabilities and the fact that she was unable to live a typical life of a woman in her position. You know, marriage, you know, babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she she's supposed to be, like, living it up like this little socialite, and it, it doesn't seem like that totally aligns with what she wants to do, but also not with what she can do or what people yeah. will allow her to do because she kind of has yeah. a hard time socializing because she's different and we all know mm-hmm. how awesome we are to different people yeah. <laughs> she also had this drive to help people but wasn't sure how to get started which like totally relatable yeah. and she wrote long letters to her friend from rockford seminary ellen gates star mostly about christianity and books but sometimes also she was very open about her depression and jane and ellen would go on to date because mm-hmm. her back wasn't the only thing that wasn't straight <laughs> <laughs> that was good that was good that was good yeah thank you but like that whole like lack of direction is so relatable because I remember feeling that way after college because sure. throughout your life you have like okay I kindergarten elementary high school or middle school high school yeah. college now what, what? now what yeah. like you're almost yeah. overwhelmed with options especially at this time she's like well w- what can I do the doctor thing was kind of the track I was gonna follow and now it's just like too much I don't know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm like, oh, Jane, honey, I feel you, and I want to give you a hug. I want to take you and Ellen out to dinner. <laughs> right? So all this time, though, Jane was still reading and gathering inspiration from what she read. She was fascinated by the early Christians and Tolstoy's book called By Religion. She went on to be baptized as a Christian in Cedarville Presbyterian Church. 
She also enjoyed reading Giuseppe Manzini's Duties of Man, and this mm-hmm. inspired her, or this this idea of democracy inspired her, um, so, like to to be the social ideal. She was still confused about her role as a woman and like what she could and couldn't do. And John Stuart Mill's The Subjugation of Woman, which argued strongly for gender equality made her question the social pressures for women to marry, have babies, devote their lives to the family, and be denied voting rights or the rights to pockets and pants. <laughs> the really sweet thing about that, uh, the su- the subjection of women, too, is that he co-wrote that with his wife. Oh, uh, God, who, I hate like, that. Who, like, passed away shortly after he published, like, the first little version, and then he continued I it after that. she died. But I was like, oh. Wait, why, why do you hate it? Well, because she died, and that sucks. Oh. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. And well, the first is funny because like I hadn't heard of it before, and so like I I read the title and I'm like, the fuck is that book? Yeah. And then I went like researched pro- it and I was like, oh no, 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 this is okay. Yeah, this is okay actually. <laughs> like, wait, are you pro or anti yeah, subjection exactly. of women? <laughs> so at 27 years old, during a second tour of Europe, now with her girlfriend Ellen, former classmate, as we mentioned, um, Jane and Ellen went and visited. Oh, gosh. I should have looked at the pronunciation Toyn- of this. Toynbee Hall. Hall. T-O-Y-N-B-E-E. Toynbee. It's probably not pronounced that at all. We're going with it. Toynbee. It's fun to say. Um, which was a settlement house in London's East End. The settlement house offered assistance to the poor industrial workers of London's East End, which was very poor. Oh, yeah. yeah they, had a, they had a lot of people to help. We talked <laughs> yeah. about the East End in our Jack the Ripper episode. Woo! Right. They had some hot mess going yeah. on there. No oh, way. Yeah, they did. Um, so as Jane would describe uh, Toynbee as, quote, a community of university men who live there, have their recreation clubs and society, all among the poor people, yet in the same style in which they would live in their own circle. It is so free of professional doing good and so unaffectedly sincere and so productive of good results in its classes and libraries. It seems like a, the perfectly, or it seems perfectly ideal. End quote. So there you go. Suddenly there was a crack of lightning and a light bulb miraculously appeared above Jane's head as she got the idea to implement a similar model to help the poor in Chicago, which also had really bad neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. This was great timing because at this time, the United States was starting to undergo a huge flux of immigration and industrialization, and Jane had a plan. And this whole settlement house idea is so cool because it's not just serving the poor, but it's integrating different classes of people together and treating them as equals. And so it's giving the wealthier people an opportunity to help people less fortunate, but also giving... out of their asses. Yeah, but also giving the poor people an opportunity to be helped, but also kind of like be treated as equals and like right. that's got to help your self-esteem yeah. because I'm sure you just told you're a piece of shit your whole life because exactly. class especially, is still especially an issue. by the, like the higher class that tend to look down on people yeah. like I'm sure yeah so in 1889 she and Ellen leased a mansion called the Hull House built by Charles Hull and this was at the corner of Halstead and Polk Street the couple moved into the mansion uh, to provide a center for a higher civic and social life, to institute and maintain educational and philanthropic enterprises, and to investigate and impose the conditions in the industrial districts of Chicago, end quote. I can't remember where that quote began, but you'll figure it out. <laughs> it's, it's where I got real weird. Unfortunately, Anytime she starts an accent. Yes. <laughs> That's where it begins and ends. 
Yep. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, the mansion was kind of a fucking dump and it was in desperate oh. need of repairs. Yeah. And so this is the part where we pitch our new HGTV show about Jane and Ellen, lesbian lovers, renovating this old mansion. And it's called Overhaul. Mm. I dig it. They're standing back and yeah, back they're... with like hammers and wrenches, just looking at each other like, love you. Love <laughs> I'd watch That's it. So I'd watch it. Oh my God, if HGTV doesn't have a show that's basically that, they're doing it all All wrong. 100% (laughs) wrong. So Jane put her inheritance to work and paid to give the mansion a glow up. She also paid for the operating costs. So this place was up and running. She didn't have to do a ton of fundraising to get it off the ground initially, which was a huge advantage. Thanks, Double D. (laughs) Thanks, Double D. Dainty dick for the win. (laughs) (laughs) This new settlement house became the first of its kind in the United States. So she's that person in the YouTube comments that's like, first. (laughs) That's awesome. Because there was no social media, Patreon, <coughs> hint, hint, or mm. GoFundMe, Jane and Ellen would make speeches across the country about the needs of the neighborhood, raising money, convincing young women of well-to-do families to help, taking care of children, nursing the sick, and listening to the outpourings from troubled people. So they're just like doing this grassroots marketing, and it worked. Yeah, it did. Donations began to support the Hull House during its first year, meaning Jane didn't have to fund the entire enterprise herself. Several wealthy women became important long-term donors to Hull House, including Helen Culver, who was a real estate developer and philanthropist, who actually owned the estate on behalf of her cousin, Charles, who had built the place. And Helen eventually allowed the contributors to use the house rent-free. She's like... I'm oh, wow. digging what y'all are doing over there. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Because empowered women empower women. Well, I mean, plus, wow. like, they completely renovated the house. So it's like, right. if she eventually sells the estate, it's going to be worth a lot it's more. It's worth yeah. so much more. Helen was Helen was ha- hustling in the right way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. So by its second year in operation, Hull House was hosting 2,000 people every week. There were kindergarten classes in the morning, club meetings for older children in the afternoon, and for adults in the evening, more clubs or courses in what essentially became a night school for adults, which is great. This was a forerunner of the continuing education classes offered by many universities today in their night school programs. Hmm. Hull House, obviously, if you can't tell from all the lists we're giving you, was, was a hit and ready to expand. Facilities began to be added to the Hull House including, and get ready for a bitching bullet list, a public kitchen, a coffee house, gymnasium, swimming pool, cooperative boarding club for girls, book bindery, art studio, music studio, drama group, library, an employment bureau, and a labor museum. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Can yeah. we live here? Yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, I want a swimming pool wow. and an art studio. I want a book bindery. That just sounds fun. Learn skills. Yeah. I actually, um, when I was in Scotland, one of the students who was also on the trip started dating a guy who was, he was like a native and he was, uh, like a bookbinder apprentice and that was going to be his career. That's so cool. And I'm like, oh my God, Scotland, you're charming as hell. Well, and I wonder if a lot of their work these days are like restoring, like people coming in and being like, I want this book rebound, you know, that was my like great grandfather's. But wait, there's more. In addition to making available social services and cultural events for the largely immigrant population of the neighborhood, Hull House afforded opportunities for young social workers to get training. Eventually, Hull House became a 
15 building settlement complex, which include a playground and a summer camp known as Bowen Country Club. And that's so I love that. That's very I also fancy. love that they called it a country club because when I think of a country club, I think like, oh, you have to be white and Christian to go here. And they're like, all the immigrants go here. And it's like a summer camp. <laughs> yeah. I went to a YMCA summer camp. I would much rather have it been called a country club. Because then when you go back, you're not like, yeah, I went to YMCA. You're like, oh, I went to the country club. Also. Yes, I went to Bowen Country Club where I rode horses and did equestrians. <laughs> did equestrians. I went I to the equestrians. The <laughs> oh, God. So residents weren't just like painting and drinking coffee, but I bet they definitely I mean, were doing a lot of that. Not all of the time. That was like 80% of the time. My, my past ancestor was definitely just being like, drinking coffee all day. Hey, Emily, you want to help out with this? No. <laughs> but they were also conducting investigations on housing, midwifery, fatigue, tuberculosis, typhoid, garbage collection, cocaine, and truancy. It was, it was like That's against amazing. cocaine. It was, it was like how to help people get off yeah. cocaine, yeah. not like yeah, yeah, yeah. cocaine dens. Yeah. Yes. Just feel like I need to throw that out there. So the core Hull House residents were well-educated women bound together by their commitment to labor unions, the National Consumers League, and the suffrage movement. Basically, gals getting it done. And so they're, like, doing Loving this it. research and figuring out, like, how can we better help society? And they became their own little, like, philanthropic think tank. Yeah, come on. Philanthropic women feminist women. think tank. Yes! Yeah. I found the second part of this episode. Oh. All right. So the art program was particularly important to Jane. It allowed Jane to challenge the system of industrialized education, which just like fitted individuals with a specific job or position, kind of like they do in Futurama, where they just like give you the chip and they're like, this is what you are now. Yep. <laughs> this is your Deal life. with it. Yeah. Episode one. It was exactly like that. I know, because yes. my husband made me watch it 6,000 times. Good man. <laughs> just a, no. Just episode one, not all of Futurama. He only made her watch episode one, 600. No, Leah has no idea how the rest of the series goes, but she has episode one memorized. I, I don't. He does. <laughs> because every time we watch it, it's it's one of the shows we watch. Like, if we watch TV yeah. before falling asleep, that's what it is. And yeah, because he knows it well enough that if he falls asleep during it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah. And so episode one, especially when it starts, do you want to know the first line of Futurama? Because I could tell you. Yes. yes. Space. It seems to go on forever. And then <laughs> the and then the gorillas at the end or something like that. <sighs> oh my god. That that's King of the Hill for me and Jared. Yeah. And actually we have been binging and re-binging and re-binging King of the Hill really hard lately. I don't know, we're both on this weird like 90s, early 2000s nostalgia kick. I love that. And we will, we both like have episodes memorized. And so we'll like quote it to each other two seconds before uh -oh. the character actually says yep. it. And then just look at each other and be like, I love you. Yeah, we just... <laughs> so Jane wanted to provide space, time and tools to encourage people to think independently and express their creativity. She saw art as the key to unlocking the diversity of the city through collective interaction, mutual self-discovery, recreation and the imagination, which art, I'm like, art is great for that's some people beautiful words. Yeah. yeah. But also it's like, you're more than just someone that has to grind themselves into the dirt to live. Right. We, so Jared and I have been watching the show alone. It's one of those survival shows and the premise is 10 people are thrown into the wilderness and they're all spread out far enough apart where they're never going to interact with each other. And basically whoever lasts the longest wins. And I think where the, did they find enough space that 10 people can be that isolated? Patagonia. 
the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah, so not the, not the Pacific Northwest. There's an island in the Pacific Northwest where okay. they like through these people. And they're sense. like five kilometers apart, but it's too much. And anyway, <laughs> like people will be out there for like over 70 days, totally wow. alone. Like, and is part it all of like it, they, they personally record? Yes. Them? Okay. Because I was like, if they're being filmed by a film crew, they are not alone. Yeah. The only human interaction <laughs> they get is a medical team will come and just make sure that they're not about to die. Yeah, that they can course. continue competing. And so something that's really interesting is that it's not just about getting enough calories, getting a shelter, staying safe and warm. It's about keeping your mind active. And there was one guy on there who was very artsy and crafty. And like he starts decorating his space. He makes like this wizard staff where he's like carving his journey into like he got because he needed to and it was one of those things where I'm like we we're always talking about how art isn't important it's critical for our survival yeah it's so important to our humanity and Jane fucking knew it right she's a genius she is genius anyways during this time Jane would meet her second romantic partner Mary Rosett Smith Mary came from a nice, similar, wealthy background as Jane. Unlike Jane, however, she didn't attend university and had a more typical upbringing for a high-class woman, the one that Jane had always wanted. Mary helped to financially support Hull House, and she and Jane would eventually move in together. For anyone who wants to try and say that Jane and Mary were just really good friends, historian Lily Faderman wrote that Jane was in love and she addressed Mary as my ever dear, darling, and dearest one and concluded Mm -hmm. that they shared the intimacy of a married couple. So screw you all you historians that try to hide lesbian relationships. Yeah, that's dumb. Anyways. (laughs) Lesbians forever. Jane and Mary would remain together until 1934 when Mary would die of pneumonia. And that was 40 years together. Wow. It was said that, quote, Mary Smith became and always remained the highest and clearest note in the music that was Jane Addams' personal life. Oh. That's a a beautiful beautiful string of words. Right? Together, they owned a summer house in Bar Harbor, Maine. And when apart, they would often write to each other, um, at least once a day, sometimes twice or more. Oh my god! Jane would write to Mary. I know, right? I don't even get dedication. One text I don't even day. text people that much. <laughs> I know my husband, my husband never texts me. Uh, Jane would write to Mary, "quote I miss you dreadfully and am yours till death." Aww. The letters also showed that the women saw themselves as a married couple. Um, as as Jane would say to her, "quote There is reason in the habit of married folks keeping together." Oh, but they're just friends. Just super good gal pals. Yeah, clearly. Well, we just had a Patreon episode. We were talking about Boston marriages. And one of the things that we talked about was how at that time, women had a little more freedom to be in open romantic relationships together because there was this belief that neither of them had a penis, so it couldn't be sexual. Like, yeah. You can kiss, you can hug, you can hold hands. But but there, there's nothing sexual because no that's penis, just not possible. No penis, no problem. Yeah, right. women are basically asexual until a guy puts a dick in them. And I'm like, I have no, that's I have so no horrible. Words. But I mean, yeah, right? yay, lesbians get to be lesbians. <laughs> I need to have a, uh, whoever, whatever guy said that, I would like to have a conversation with his parents about the conversation they had with him. My fist would like to have a conversation with his face. Yeah, and that. (laughs) 
So as Jane's reputation as a bomb-ass bitch grew, she was drawn into larger fields of civic responsibility. In 1905, she was appointed to Chicago's Board of Education and subsequently named chairman of the school management committee. I mean, yeah, she started a whole night school without yeah. even like, trying to. Yeah, right. it just it, she woke up one morning. She's like, oh, there's a night school here. That's cool. <laughs> Last night. In 1908, she helped found the Chicago School of Civics and Philanthropy and in the next year became the first woman president of the National Conference of Charities and Corrections. And in her own area of Chicago, she accepted the official post of garbage inspector. Because yeah. why oh, the God. fuck not? What? I mean, they were doing garbage research at the Hull House. Yeah, that's probably why. She, she's looking for needles. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but she was the garbage inspector of the 19th Ward, and she was receiving an annual salary of $1,000, which is almost $30,000. Not that she needed I mean, it, but... To be a garbage inspector, $30,000 a year? I mean, I'll depending on what you have to do, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. So in 1910, she received the first honorary degree ever awarded to a woman by Yale University, and she received a Master oh, of Arts. Oh, wow. Which I think is so sweet because I don't think at the time Yale accepted women's students, mm-hmm. or at least when she was going to college, which is one of the reasons that like Smith and the other seven sisters right. popped yep. up as a response to that. So yeah. the fact that she wanted to go to this like, Ivy League University equivalent never got to, and then Ivy right. League University was like, yes. "Here's your degree." <gasps> and for those, oh my God, there's a kitty. <laughs> for those who <laughs> might wonder why she got a Master of Arts and in, instead of something else, um, she's doing a lot of work in the field of like sociology and um, social work, and that is generally a Master of Arts. I know for psychology, you can get either a Master of Arts or a Master of Science, but a lot of times mm-hmm. sociology and social work is going to be a Master of Arts. Your kitty's mm-hmm. giving you kisses. What is their name? Mally. Mally. <laughs> Emily. Yeah. It, it is getting late. Stop making the I cat derail the, the episode. Ginger <laughs> baby. <laughs> I'll, I'll take him out of frame so he'll stop distracting. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we okay. We we interviewed uh, Hallie Shapley who wrote a, a women's history sports book, um, and Is her cat strong popped like her? up. And Is I that her. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And it's a uh, great book. Highly and recommend. Her cat popped up, and I had like the same like everything stopped. I was just like, Ugh! and I'm <laughs> over here like. I made some really unattractive sounds. Like, it's a cute cat, but... But let's move on. <laughs> no, but it's a cat. It is 9.48 at night. I have to work in the yeah, morning. Yeah, let's go. So, let's go. Yes. If you couldn't already tell, Jane was a fierce feminist in the dark days before the 19th Amendment and then all the other things that gave all women yeah, the right just, to vote. <laughs> you know, She believed that women should make their voices heard in legislation and therefore should have the right to vote. But more comprehensively, she thought that women should generate aspirations and search out opportunities and realize them. So she's like, women, mm. do it for yourselves. Mm-hmm. Love that. Jane, yeah, right? And Jane didn't just talk the talk. She also walked the walk. She pursued her own pacifist aspirations by creating opportunities or seizing those offered to her to advance the cause. In 1906, she gave a course of lectures at the University of Wisconsin. Woo! We both graduated from a University of Wisconsin. (laughs) Nice. The same one. Um, So she did a summer session, which, and then... She published a book following the following year titled Newer Ideals of Peace. She spoke for peace. Where am I? 
She she spoke for peace in 1913 at a ceremony commemorating the building of the Peace Palace at the Hague. The Hague. The Hague. The Hague. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) I only know that because we had a friend that studied in the Hague for like six months or something and she always that's yeah cool. i thought it was dumb that she called it the hague and then i was like oh that's actually what it's called it's the hague. It's yeah. Called. <laughs> yeah and, and then Bye. i went there for a day once right that's cool it's supposed to be really neat yeah um and in the next two years she would go on as a lecturer sponsored by the carnegie foundation to speak against america's entry into the first world war uh, in January 1915, she accepted the chairmanship of the Women's Peace Party, which was an American organization. And four months later, she pres- she accepted the presidency of the International Congress of Women, which convened at The Hague. Right? Yes. <laughs> you got it. Uh, largely upon the initiative of Dr. Aletta Jacobs, who is a Dutch suffragist leader. Um, When the Congress later founded the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom Organization, Jane served as president until 1929 as presiding officer of its six international conferences in those years and as an honorary president for the remainder of her life. Wow. That that is amazing. She's getting shit done for peace. But... Uh-oh. No good deed goes unpunished. Oh, no. For her oh, no. public opposition for America's entry into World War One or the Great War, Jane was attacked in the press and expelled from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Because they're kind of like, yeah, war. Yeah, but she found an outlet for her humanitarian impulses as an assistant to Herbert Hoover in providing relief supplies and food to the women and children of enemy nations the story of which she told in her book peace and bread in time of war which was published in 1922 which i would love to read that's and yeah. that's amazing like she's just like yeah i understand we're at war i don't want to be at war so i'm gonna like these are women and children which are people that are not fighting i'm gonna help them in in these countries that we're at war yeah. with because mm-hmm. they're getting screwed no matter what yeah, yeah right yeah. especially certain ones that we're getting bombed the hell out of mm-hmm. So while Jane was slaying it, her chronic health problems reared their ugly head again. Mm. In 1926, Jane suffered a heart attack and never fully recovered. This significantly limited her activities and ability to travel. In fact, this is so sad. She was admitted to the Baltimore Hospital on December 10th, 1931, the same day she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo. Oh, this made wow. her yeah. the first U.S. woman to win the prize, and she was applauded for her, quote, expression of an essentially American democracy, end quote, and for, quote, their assiduous effort to revive the ideal of peace and to rekindle the spirit of peace in their own nation and in the whole of mankind, end quote. She was, uh, she donated her share of the prize money because she won it jointly with her uh, former partner, Ellen. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and a guy won that year too, but like okay. separately from them. They want a different thing. I don't care about them. Uh, <laughs> but she donated her share of the prize money to the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom because she's a gem. Yep. Yeah. Uh, due to her health problems, however, she was never able to go and deliver a Nobel lecture as her doctors advised against any international travel. Or flipping so, it from before. That was sad. Yeah. Right. She died in 1935, three days after undergoing an operation, which revealed she had cancer. Ugh. Oh, wow. Because we couldn't end this story without just that little cancer yeah, cherry just on to, top. Like, just the, the funeral service was held in the courtyard of the Hull House. Aww. Oh, so sweet. So legacy. Hull House and the peace movement are widely recognized as 
key tangible pillars of Jane's legacy. Obviously. While her life focused on the development of individuals, her ideas continue to influence social, political, and economic reform in the United States, as well as internationally. The creation of this settlement house, the Hull House, impacted the community of, of immigrant residents and social work in the area. Jane's role as a reformer enabled her to petition the establishment at and altered the social and physical geography of her Chicago neighborhood. Although contemporary academic sociologists define her engagement as social work, Jane's efforts differed significantly from activities typically labeled as social work during that time period. Mm. It is akin to social work during our time period, but not back then. Before Jane's powerful influence on the profession, social work was largely informed by a friendly visitor quotes, <laughs> uh, model in which typically wealthy women of high public stature visited impoverished individuals and through systematic assessment and intervention aimed to improve the lives of the poor. So basically it was a way for wealthy women to make themselves feel. Yeah. Well. It was like, that's what, I'm, whim, that's what I'm viewing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Occasional. Yeah. On yeah. their, on their own time, on their own terms. Yeah. Social work today though is better. <laughs> Jane rejected this friendly visitor model in favor of a model of actual social reform slash social theory building, thereby introducing what is now a central tenet of social justice and reform to the field of social work. Wow. Jane, raising my hand. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes, you in the back. <laughs> is the connection social work? It ding, is. Ding, 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 ding. We also, have a winner. I think we can argue she had a she had a house that served. It was uh, similar to a boarding yeah. house. Yeah, yeah, she had a house that served vulnerable people and actually helped and them while Dorothea Puente murder them murder for them. their money. Didn't take yeah. advantage of them and, and or murder them, yeah. So she yes. did it right. She did what Dorothea Puente could have done had she not been a raging bitch. Yeah. Gold star for Leah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> So Jane also worked with other reform groups towards goals, including the first juvenile court law, tenement house regulation, and eight-hour working days for women. Whoop, whoop. That's awesome. Also, factory inspections and workers' compensation. Yes. Wow. She advocated research aimed at determining the causes of poverty and crime, which, like, even nowadays is kind of this weird, like, people don't want to talk about. It's like, no, it's a moral failing. And back in the 1800s, she's like... I don't think so. Right. Uh, she also supported women's suffrage, and she was a strong advocate for justice for immigrants, African-Americans, and minority groups by becoming a chartered member of the NAACP. Yeah. Among the projects that the members of the Hall House opened were the Immigrants Protective League, the Juvenile Protective Association, and the first juvenile court in the United States, and... A juvenile psychopathic clinic or like wow. juvenile therapy. Yep. Yay, juvenile wow. therapy. Yeah. Jane's influential writings and speeches on behalf of the formation of the League of Nations and as a peace advocate influenced the later shape of the United Nations. Like oh she's my doing it all. Yeah. And then she's also been recognized by the Chicago-based Legacy Project, which honors members of the LGBTQ plus community who have made positive contributions to world history and culture because she's a bomb-ass lesbian queen who helped, like, countless people. Yes. And today, Hull House, you can still go to it because it's a museum and you can actually take a virtual tour, donate, and learn more at hullhousemuseum.org. So even though, do you have something to say? 
Rachel? No, I was, I literally was going to say like, and that's the next thing I'm spending my money on. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, get some merch. Um, anyways, so the TLDR or TLDL too long. Didn't listen. Um, <laughs> even though this is the end, but well, cause TLDR is too long. Too long. Didn't read. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's too long, didn't listen. Although this is at the end. But if you if you want to tell Jane's story to other people, this is our nice little wrap up with a bow. So the main legacy left by Jane Adams includes her involvement and creation of the Hull House, which impacted communities and the whole social structure, reaching out to colleges and universities in hopes of bettering the education system and passing on her knowledge to others through speeches and books. She paved the way for women by publishing several books and co-winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Dang girl. Yay. Get it. I mean, amazing. she did so much. And, and that, that's the I, thing that's actually God, never sad is how influential she was in so many different areas of social work and politics and women's rights and LGBTQ plus rights. And I knew nothing about her. Yeah. Right. So if we have any listeners in Chicago, I want to know, like, is she more well known in Chicago right. like, where she did most of her work? Or is she unfortunately one of those people that has faded from all history? Yeah. Right. Like, did you go on your fifth grade field trip to Hull House? Because I want to hear yeah, all about that. Yeah. Do you have any pictures? Send them our way. I want to hear how Kevin G liked Allison A, but he was just like crushing on Allison A <laughs> to get to Becky G. <laughs> Right, and then they kissed in the corner. Yeah, and then they kissed in the old art studio. It was this whole thing. No one ever really got drama, over it. Drama, drama, drama. Drama in the whole house. <laughs> well, uh, we want we want to end this episode the way that we end all of our episodes with what we're thankful for. I know Kelly and I are so thankful that you joined us again. Yes, we are. To be on episode is always such a pleasure to talk with you. We, we love, you, love guys. you guys. We love your podcast, and we cannot recommended enough i literally talk to people i'm like oh you're into dark shit let me tell you about hashtag history <laughs> oh you like weird things from history let me tell you about hashtag history. oh my yeah. gosh you guys thank you so oh, much i know but yeah um i will Can say we just say that uh, uh oh go ahead rachel you were a little laggy but i think you're back i was like is it us or them <laughs> go ahead you just keep talking, Leah. Okay. I was just going to say, freezing. okay. I was just going to say, we're so thankful for your friendship and for being part of this podcast community. So thank you so much. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn about a super badass bitch. In addition to learning out about a just bad bitch. Just bad bitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rachel, do you have do you anything want to you want to say, say what you're thankful for? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Do I want to say what I'm thankful for? I was actually going to say the same thing. I heard like half of Leah's, but yeah, I was just going to say, I'm super thankful for this podcast community. It's so amazing how many friends we've met like all across the world because of it. And you two ladies are right up there at the top. So thank you for always having us um, on your show. And we're so thankful to be on here and to have met you guys. Yeah. You're always welcome to be on our show. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> can you tell our listeners where they can find you on all the interwebs? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast, or you can find our website at hashtag history dash pod.com. And we're also on TikTok. I keep, I'm trying to. Are you really? Yeah. <laughs> we have like about three posts. Yeah. Um, it's at, <laughs> at hashtag history, all one word, no spaces. Nice. Well, our listeners know where they can find us. Whining about her Facebook, WAH pod on Instagram. 
W-A-H underscore pod on Twitter. And our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you. Any stories you have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening to this very special episode. Special thanks to our guests, Rachel and Leah of Hashtag History. If you have not checked them out by now, there is something deeply wrong with you as a person. Go do it. Go do, do it, it now. right now. The episode's over. You can yeah, go do it now. Go. We don't care. Start with Chapa Quick. That shit is so fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Start at the beginning, because that yeah. is Chappaquiddick. Yeah. Sometimes we actually get a little cringy about starting at the beginning because we didn't know what we were doing. So maybe oh, start no, at season two. Yeah. I don't know. We're the same way. We're like, if you're going to start our podcast, don't start from episode yeah. one. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Our, like, go go from most recent. Yeah. Because hopefully by the time, if you go most recent all the way down to like our oldest ones, hopefully by then you like us enough that you accept all our faults. Exactly. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, start, start new or like in the middle, and then you can go back to the beginning some other time when you're already hooked. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, as always, well, thank you. I'm Emily. Oh, I'm Kelly. So much. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you're you. You're welcome. Who are you ladies? <laughs> we have a whole thing. Wait, what? Rachel. <laughs> oh, and I'm Leah. <laughs> and have an empowered day. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>